Hey, good morning, everybody. So good to see all of you today. Thanks for being here this, uh, this, is this Independence Day weekend? I don't know. Or is it next weekend? I don't know. This Independence Day week. Um, we're glad that you are here. I'm really thankful to see so many people here and worshiping the Lord with us this morning. Uh, Thank you, Dylan and worship team, for, for leading us. And just, man, so thankful for you guys and the job you do leading us in music. Um, also, I want to thank Dan Olson and Dylan for preaching while I was in Africa. Uh, I, I love hearing different voices from the pulpit, and we are blessed to have a number of gifted preachers here at this church. Um, I want to show you a picture. I can't show you everything from my trip to Africa, but I, I did want to show you one picture this morning, if we can get that on there. This is a picture. Um, we did a Bible. Wait, this wasn't the Bible. This, we did a day where I did like Q&A about the Bible with about 50 people. And at the end of it, we gave everybody who could read their own Bible. And everybody who couldn't read got one of the audio Bibles that Cedar Home purchased. And so there were, this is a group of five people um, uh, who got the solar-powered audio Bibles. And so it was, it was pretty awesome. And just wanted you to, to see a picture of it. It was, it, was a, it was a joy to do that and got to hit on some fun topics. And um, I'll tell you what, man, the joy in people's eyes when they received their own Bible, it was, it was incredible. Uh, it, was, it was so cool to, to see that and be part of that. And anyways, we want to tell you more about our trip, and we really thank you for, um, for your prayers while we were gone. We definitely needed them, and um, it was a joy to preach at three different churches while we were there and um, to say, uh, you know, I'm here. I want to send you greetings. I bring you greetings from Cedar Home Baptist Church in Washington State, and, and people loved that. And, oh, man, oh, man, they're excited to hear that. And... Uh, and so it's good to be back, and I love you guys, and I'm thankful to, to be back here and um, get back into the Word. Um, we're going to pick up this morning where we last left off in the book of Acts. I'm going to tell you more about my trip sometime later. I don't know, not today. Um, not today, but sometime in the next month we'll have to find a time when whoever wants to come hear about it can hear about it. Um, but we're going to get back into the book of Acts, and if you're newer with us, the book of Acts is a book in the Bible that chronicles what happened among Jesus' followers after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And so far in Acts, we've seen that this fledgling group of Christians in Jerusalem, they were known for a few things. They were known for their exceptional generosity and for their love for one another. And we also know that they devoted themselves to the preaching and teaching of God's word. Uh, we've seen that uh, they devoted themselves to praying together as a church and to sharing a common life together, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. And the Christians did all of these things in a way that the world had never seen before because for the first time ever, God the Holy Spirit came from heaven and permanently indwelt the church. Uh, he united all of God's people with his indwelling spirit. And so uh, the Holy Spirit's presence and work in the, in the disciples and through them um, has been and always will be the catalyst for miraculous ministry. Okay? Among those Jerusalem Christians, the Holy Spirit, this is what he was doing. He was, he was testifying to the truth of the gospel by granting uh, faith and repentance to miraculously thousands of people at a time. Uh, and the Holy Spirit was, he was performing signs and wonders through the apostles, 
to affirm the truthfulness of their message. And the Holy Spirit was, was filling these Christians with supernatural courage to keep sharing their faith as they were hated more and more. If you got a Bible with you, please open up now to Acts chapter 6, verse 1. That's where we're going where we're gonna to be, Acts 6, verse 1. If you don't own a Bible, let us know, let me know, let one of our leaders know. We'd love to either give you one or, or show you where you can get a good one. We're going to look at a passage here today. And before we do that, let me, let me pray for the word. <clears throat> Dear Lord Jesus, we, we believe that you are in heaven right now, that you are alive, that you're ruling over us and over this world and universe. And we believe that what we're about to read in the Bible is your very word. You breathed out these words about 2,000 years ago, and um, you guided the authors of Scripture as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so as we encounter you in your Bible today, we just ask that you would, Holy Spirit, please transform our hearts and our minds. Uh, we, we didn't come here today just to learn a, a history lesson about what's happened in the past. It's good to know, but what we, we want is you. We need you. We need you to show us your glory today. We need you to give us your power and to reveal your glory to us in a fresh new way through your word. And, and so, Holy Spirit, we ask for your help that you would open our hearts and minds to you. Give us faith where there is no faith in us. Give us spiritual nourishment where we need it most. You know, each one of our circumstances, you're compassionate towards us. You love us. You know what we're going through. Help us not to worry about the clock today. Help us not to worry about what we have to do this week. Just help us to savor this time. Help us to savor you. And we just ask that you would um, protect us physically and spiritually from evil. And we pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, I'm going to read through Acts 6, 1 to 7. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we'll put it on the screen. And then we'll go back through this one verse at a time. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It's the word of the Lord. Let's hop back to verse 1 there. In verse 1, Luke writes, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. So the fact that the disciples were increasing in number tells us that the disciples were faithful to the mission that Jesus gave to them, to go make more disciples. Remember, that was what Jesus said right before he ascended to heaven. 
He said, I want you to go make, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, and I want you to go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And so Luke says here that the Jerusalem disciples were doing just that. They, they were uh, making disciples, and as a result of their efforts, God was blessing them. And it says the Holy Spirit was, was giving faith to many people as they heard this, the, the, these disciples speak the good news of Jesus. And Jesus' disciples subsequently were increasing in number. That is exactly what Jesus wanted to see happen, to see the disciples increase in number. And this is still what Jesus wants to see happen. Okay. Is that what you want to see happen? Do you want to see Jesus' disciples increase in number here in Stanwood and all around the world? D does it excite you to think about being part of that? Does it excite you to, to use your life and your, your time and your money and your family and your skills to make more disciples of Jesus? If so, then Cedar Home's the right church for you. Because making disciples of Jesus is what our church is about. Uh, on the front of your bulletin, you'll see that our church purpose statement says that Cedar Home Baptist Church exists to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus. Now, here in Stanwood in 2018, we Stanwood disciples want to do the exact same thing that those Jerusalem disciples were doing 2,000 years ago. We want to share the good news of Jesus courageously. We want to love the Lord well, and we want to love our neighbors really well. Right? We want to do all of that together. And while we know that Jesus is the one who, he says, I will build my church. He's the one who grows his church uh, according to his sovereign timing and will. While he does that, we, on our part, get to participate. We should be praying that more people will trust in Jesus for eternal life and become his disciples. And we should do that with anticipation, we should be anticipating that as we love our neighbors, as we tell them about Jesus, what he's done for us, and what he's done on the cross, that God will grant repentance and faith to some of them. And we pray that, that some of those new Christians would be baptized here at Cedar Home and, and will grow with us as disciples of Jesus here. And praise God, we've gotten to do a number of baptisms this year at Cedar Home. So multiplying disciples... Of Jesus is a great thing. It is what Jesus wants for us. But as any church body grows numerically, which is a good thing, it also grows in complexity. And complexity can quickly turn into conflict as we see in today's passage, okay? So let's read Acts 6, 1 to 2 again. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So as God uh, blessed the church in Jerusalem with more and more disciples, some healthy problems were arising that required the apostles' attention. And specifically we read here about three problems that arose from the increasing number of disciples in Jerusalem. First of all, the mercy ministry... Uh, for which the Jerusalem church was known was no longer happening efficiently and equitably. Uh, earlier in Acts, we read that there were no disciples in Jerusalem, none in need, because they all took care of each other. 
The, the disciples who had money, it says, brought much of their money and set it at the apostles' feet, and then the apostles distributed among all the Christians as any had need. And some of the disciples in Jerusalem who were of greatest need were widows. Uh, widows had little or no income. They, they had no husband to look out for them and potentially no family. But this is why we read throughout the New Testament over and over about the importance of the church taking care of its widows. And as the disciples increased in number, it became increasingly difficult to distribute money and food efficiently and equitably. Okay, so, and this leads us to the second problem that arose among the Jerusalem Christians, which is uh, that a division was starting to form between Christians of different cultures. Christians of different cultures. Specifically, we read about this group, the Hellenists, who raised a complaint against the Hebrews. Okay, so you got two groups kind of within the church. The Hebrews were the Jews from Jerusalem who had become Christians. They spoke Aramaic. They had their own language, okay? Primarily Aramaic. Um, they were the Jews from Jerusalem who had become Christians. The Hellenists were the Jews from outside Jerusalem who had become Christians. They primarily spoke Greek, okay? So the Hebrews and the Hellenists, you're talking, these aren't two different religions. They're all Christians, but they have different cultures. The Hebrews and the Hellenists, they had their own languages and cultures, and actually these two groups were at odds with each other outside of the church. So they had their own issues before ever becoming Christians. And when you begin to get people from each of these groups becoming disciples of Jesus, they bring with them their unique cultures and some of their pre-existing biases into the church. And so when a daily distribution of food occurred to those in need, it appears that the Hebrew widows were given priority while the Hellenist widows were being neglected. And understandably, the Hellenists or the Greek speakers were upset about this, and a division began to form between these two groups of Christians. That's the second problem. And the third problem that arose from this situation of increasing disciples is that it threatened to distract the apostles from their primary calling to prayer into the ministry of the word. Acts 6, 2 says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now it's important when you read that to note that, that it wasn't that the apostles did not value the daily distribution. Of course they valued it. They led the whole thing. And it wasn't that they thought that the task of overseeing the, the daily distribution was suddenly beneath them. That's not what was going on. The problem was that the apostles' primary calling to preach and to pray was in jeopardy because of healthy problems that were arising in the church. And the apostles knew that it would be detrimental. It's going to be detrimental to the church and to the advancement of the gospel if we focus all our time and energy on the logistical issues facing the church, this growing church, instead of praying and preaching and teaching. So these were the three problems facing the church. First, mercy ministry was no longer happening efficiently and equitably. Second, a division was starting to form between these Christians from different cultures. And third, the apostles' work of preaching and prayer was in jeopardy. So what would the apostles do to solve these problems? Well, we read about the solution in verses 2 to 6. Verse 2 says that the apostles summoned the full number of disciples in Jerusalem. 
Think about that. Don't skip over that too fast. We know that at this point, the number of men alone was over 5,000. Okay? Now, when you start adding any converted spouses or family members, you got a lot of Christians. Five to 10,000 people. And the apostles call all of them together for one giant church meeting. Okay? And then the apostles give the church this task. Select from among you seven men to whom we can delegate the responsibility of overseeing the daily distribution and, and potentially any other logistical issues that may arise. <clears throat> That's not a real high ratio. Seven men for 10,000 people, right? Why the apostles only appointed seven, we don't know. But seven men must have been a sufficient number to do the task given to them. And the apostles tell the church, this. They say, don't just throw anybody into this leadership position. The men appointed to this task must be men of good reputation, right? There should be a general consensus among all of you that these men are above reproach and that they're trustworthy. Uh, these men should also be full of the Holy Spirit uh, because this duty is going to require relying on the Holy Spirit for guidance, it's, it requires these men to have a track record of, of exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We need to have seen these traits exhibited in these men. And these men should also be full of wisdom. If, if, if we just get gifted people in there, but they're unwise, that's not going to help us. This task requires much wisdom to do it efficiently and fairly. And having established that criteria for this leadership position, verse five says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. <laughs> okay, it pleased five to 10,000 people, okay? They were all pleased with this solution. That is evidence that the Holy Spirit was working among them to give them a miraculous unity of mind. That doesn't happen in a group of 10 people, let alone 10,000. And then we read in verse 5 that the people chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. Now, one thing that's interesting about these seven men is that they all have Hellenistic names, not Hebrew names. So it might indicate that the church was diversifying its leadership to reflect all of the cultures within its body. But at a minimum, the fact that these men have Hellenist names indicates that the church was committed to, to bringing equity and fairness to all the Christians at the daily distributions. And then in verse 6, we read that the church set these seven men before the 12 apostles. They laid their hands on them and prayed for them. Remember, laying hands on people during prayer is... is all the way back to the Old Testament has been a, a visual sign of, of setting apart someone or appointing someone to a special task. And the apostles uh, likely prayed out loud in the presence of all the disciples to dedicate these men to their new ministry. Okay, so how did the appointment of these seven men help resolve those three problems that we discussed earlier? Well, now that the church had appointed these seven men to devote themselves to overseeing the church's daily distribution, there would be much more intentionality and thought behind how 
and to whom food and money should be distributed. Okay. And because many, if not all of these men were, were themselves Hellenists, then the Hellenist disciples knew that their voice would be heard if, if any problems did arise. And, and this served to shortcut, excuse me, this served to short circuit uh, any divisive spirit that may have been arising between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And since the apostles now had, had trustworthy and spirit-filled leaders in place to, to help oversee some of the logistical details of the growing church, they could confidently focus their time and attention on their primary calling to prayer and to the ministry of preaching and teaching God's word. And so the appointment of these seven new leaders really seemed to resolve the, the, those three problems facing the church. And it appears that God was pleased with a solution too when you read the following verse. Acts 6-7 says, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So according to this verse, God blessed the church in at least three more ways. First, the word of God continued to increase. Uh, because the apostles could devote themselves, uh, the majority of their time anyway, to prayer and to the ministry of the Word of God, the Word of God, the gospel, the Bible preaching and teaching continued to increase in Jerusalem. Um, this is the message. This is the inheritance we have. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for our sin raised for our justification and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven until he returns again. This is precious. This is the gospel of Jesus. Faith in this message of Jesus is what saves. Jesus saves through faith. And because of the word of God continued to increase and spread in Jerusalem, we read about the second way that God blessed the church in Jerusalem, that the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem. So there's 10,000, or whatever it is, I don't know what the number was, but five to 10,000 people was multiplying, okay? Rome, Romans ten seventeen says this, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay. So the reason why the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem was first because their faith came from hearing the word of Christ that the apostles and the disciples were proclaiming. And the reason that so many in Jerusalem put their faith in Jesus was because God was blessing that proclamation of the gospel through a revival. He was doing a revival of people who, who saw their lostness, their brokenness, their hopelessness without Jesus. They saw their need for a savior, for Jesus to save them from death and from hell and from Satan and from their sin. They saw the need for hopelessness in this life and the only hope that you can have is for God and a life of eternal blessing with him after this life. And the third way that God was blessing their gospel ministry was by, it says that he's bringing to faith a great many of the priests in Jerusalem. These are the very men who once strongly opposed the disciples and the apostles, and they are now trusting in Jesus and joining the church. That's, that's an eclectic group of people. Um, so, so as the gospel increases, as the word increases, as, as, as the, the kingdom expands and reaches all different types of people, as the Holy Spirit saves people, the church becomes more and more diverse. 
And I mean not just that church, I mean the big church, God's people, becomes more and more diverse, and that is a beautiful thing. I mean, here it says you've got Jewish priests being baptized in the name of Jesus and joining the church. And you've got these Greek Hellenists from from out in the diaspora outside Jerusalem. They're being baptized and they're joining the church and they're moving to Jerusalem to be with the church. And you've got poor widows who are being baptized and joining the church. And you've got wealthy couples we've read about who are being baptized and joining the church. The church was and the church is and the church will forever be the most beautifully diverse group of people that only God could bring together. And the one thing that unites everybody in the church is Jesus. Now looking at this passage, you might already be able to see how how it could apply to us today, both as individuals and as a church family. I want to show you three ways uh, that this applies to us. First, as the number of disciples in any church body increases, so does the diversity of the body and so does the complexity of issues and needs within the body. Those are good problems to have. But in order to resolve those issues and, and to manage the complexities of an of a increasingly uh, bigger group of people, some level of organization is required. In order for the Word of God to increase and for our mission of making disciples to advance, remember that's what we're trying to accomplish, making disciples. And for members of the body not to be overlooked, some level of organization is required. And this is what the apostles recognized, and this is what it says all of the disciples in Jerusalem acknowledged in this passage. And when you read how the church in Jerusalem decided to organize itself, you'll, you'll, you'll probably notice that it's, it's very similar to our leadership and organization structure here at Cedar Home. We no longer have 12 apostles overseeing the church because the office of apostle was held only by those 12 men who died in the first century. In their place, the New Testament instructs us to appoint elders, pastors, to oversee the local church. And similar to the apostles, the primary ministry of the pastor elders is to pray for the flock and to preach and teach God's word. And those two functions of prayer in the ministry of the word Um, fill everything, or should fill, everything that elders do in a local church as as they know their members, as they feed their members the word of God, as they lead their members, and as they protect the flock. And similar to the seven men appointed here in this passage, the New Testament also instructs us to appoint deacons, or servants is what deacon means, who assist the elders by overseeing many of the logistical needs and some of the ministry teams of the church. And, and while the leaders, um, while the elders lead the church and while the deacons assist the elders, both the elders and the deacons are appointed by the church body. And so the members of the church family choose the core leaders according to, hopefully, the requirements laid out in scripture. <clears throat> when I came back from my sabbatical in the fall of 2017, I began to have conversations with our elders and deacons and staff about three aspects of our church that we can work on, I feel, to, to benefit our church family. First, we needed to clarify how our church is organized. 
Who are the elders? What is their job? Who are the deacons? What is their job? Who is the staff? What is their job? Who are the other ministry leaders? What is their job? Who is the church body? What is its job? In order for a large group to work together effectively, any large group of people, each member of the team has to know what their job is and what their job is not. That way we can each focus on what we're supposed to focus and we can work with the other members of the team without stepping on their toes and doing their job for them. Second, we needed to clarify how tasks and ministries are delegated. Uh, How can we empower others to do ministry and not micromanage them? How can we clearly articulate what we want and expect from certain leadership positions while also giving those leaders freedom to do their job? Uh, What are those areas of ministry in church life where there's a lot of wiggle room in how the job gets done? And what are those areas that really need to get done a certain way? And then third, we needed to improve our communication. We needed to find out the best way to communicate between elders, between deacons, between staff. We needed to find out the best way to communicate with each other. Uh, We needed to find the best way for ministry teams to communicate together and with the larger church body. Now, communication is a tricky thing because it's not possible in this life to communicate perfectly, right? Because communication, as you know, is always at least a two way street. But um, I do believe as leaders, we want to work hard to over-communicate with one another and with the church. And that being said, one of the fruits of our labor over the past nine months has been the, the creation of a church organization packet, uh, which, which goes hand-in-hand hand with the Bible and our church constitution to explain which tasks and ministries the elders oversee and which tasks and ministries the deacons are responsible for, which ministries the staff are responsible for, how the church body connects to these ministries. And then on the back of the packet, we listed all the names and contact information of all the key leaders of the church. And the elders and the deacons and staff told me not to put my email in the packet, or not to put my cell phone, um, not to make me completely unavailable, but to avoid having every problem in the church automatically go to the lead pastor and instead go to the leaders that the church appointed to, to oversee ministry. And so if Cedar Home is your home church, then I encourage you to pick up one of these church organization packets. At, they're at the information table, the information center in the lobby today. We're, we're trying to communicate with you how our church is organized and who the leaders are and how you can get plugged into the church here and, and who to talk to if you have questions. So if you consider Cedar Home your church home, um, Please pick up one of those packets. Now, if, if, if Cedar Home is your church home, but you, but you have not been baptized or, or joined us in mem- membership, then our elders, we want you to become a part of our family. We want, we want to help you obey Jesus. We want to baptize you if, if you've trusted him for eternal life. And if you're not a member here, or, or you don't know if you're a member, um, but you are a baptized believer and this is your church home, we want you to become part of our church officially. Um, So please talk to one of our elders or deacons or staff if you want more information about baptism or membership. Okay, the second application for us from today's passage has to do with protecting the church by protecting the offices of the church. Protecting the church by protecting the offices specifically of of elder, pastor, elder, means same thing, and deacon. 
And a few things stick out from today's passage. First, as a church, we must value and then protect the pastor elders calling to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We've got to protect that, okay? Church history has shown that the direction of the church, of churches, the theology of the churches, the ministry of churches, the healthy of churches, the witness of the church always follows the teaching and preaching that comes from the pulpit. Did you hear that? That's why preaching is important. And the prayers of the elders in the church that accompany that teaching set the direction of the church. Many people in our culture no longer value the relevance of biblical preaching. Many churches and pastors are replacing preaching with discussions. Let's just have a discussion time for 30 minutes. That sounds more fun than listening to someone talk for 40 minutes, right? With, With comedy routines, right? How do you get people somewhere? Make them laugh. It work. Listen, comedy routines are good, but that's not why God appointed preaching, okay? And self-help seminars. Listen, we all need work in our life. That's actually not the purpose of preaching. Those things are not what we need most in our church. We need to hear from the pulpit what God ordained not the pulpit, but the preaching time for, which is to proclaim the glories of Christ and the grace of the gospel of the good news of Jesus. And how that is the lens through which we read all of scripture, which is all of God's word. That's what we need to hear from the pulpit every Sunday. Listen to this. This is what, and I'm speaking as a church member here, okay? Not just because I'm a guy who happens to be up here this week. This is what you and I need every Sunday until we die. (laughs) That's how important it is. And in between, and and let me say this. Okay, let me say this. I believe this. Because it's interesting since now you, listen, you can turn on YouTube and watch awesome preachers and stuff. There's something different about having a pastor who knows you and your town, and your church, and your circumstances preaching the gospel to you from God's word. That's a totally different ballgame than listening to some guy who's preaching to a church of 15,000 in a different city. It is different. We need shepherds, because that's why we need shepherds. We don't need just voices, which are good, we need, and we need additional teaching. I love that. I want to fill my mind with additional teaching and preaching. But we need shepherds who know our souls and who love us and who are going to preach the gospel and who are going to care for us. That's what I believe. Um, I would say this. The, it's interesting kind of being in this just kind of a, oh, a microcosm, the subworld of, of pastors and pastor conversations that happen. It's interesting, in America in 2018, the call to be a pastor is to be a great preacher. I mean, I've seen, I've seen job descriptions where it's a, you're expected to hit a home run sermon eight out of 10 Sundays. That's one of the requirements, right? You're expected to be a great preacher. You're expected to be a great teacher, a great leader who can inspire and fill people with vision and passion. You're expected to be a counselor, a mediator of conflict, 
a hospital chaplain, the funeral director, the wedding planner, exceptional theologian, a blogger, and most importantly, a wonderful family man, right? In addition to all of that. And I will freely admit, that ain't me, okay? I, I do not excel at many of these things. But this is what I do think. I think you have to do triage. I think you have, all of us in our lives, have to prioritize what is the most important thing in our life? What's the most important thing in my job? And for me, well, for me, it goes Jesus, my wife, my kids, uh, and then my church, and then my job. Like, I see you guys as family before I see you as work, okay? My job is under there. Now, within my job, I have to do what the apostles did. I have to be, for the health of the church, my not just me, but you need a pastor and future pastors, whatever. You need a pastor who's going to dedicate himself to praying for the flock and to preaching the word. That's what you need. And churches are so quick to go the other route because, because that's not super exciting to a lot of churches, right? We want a guy who's going to ride his motorcycle on stage. That's what we want. We want a guy who's, who's, who's going to wow everybody and bring the masses and all. Listen, Jesus builds the church. Our call is to faithfulness as pastors and as individuals. We love people well, we tell them about Jesus, and we leave the results to God. That's what we do. Now, in addition to all of that, I would say this. In today's passage, you see these criteria for leaders. And this is what I think. Churches need to maintain high standards for their spiritual leaders. Obviously, no elder or deacon is perfect, right? But any candidate for those offices should have an established track record of specific character and spiritual qualities. And some of those, those are listed in passages like 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter. But this is reality, okay? Some churches so desperately want leaders that they will appoint just about whoever is willing to do the job. Okay? Willingness, willingness to be an elder or a deacon is only one of the many requirements to lead in the New Testament. This is, this is what I've found, and from the mentors I've met and talked to, this is what they've said. A church is far better off choosing a smaller number of leaders who meet the biblical requirements than to choose a large number of leaders, some of whom are not fit to lead. Appointing leaders haphazardly sets up the church for far more problems down the road. So we got to keep those, we got to, basically, essentially, we have to keep God's standards up there. I know of a church that's 150 people and they have 42 deacons. That's too many. Right? <clears throat> I think, I'm not God. I don't know, maybe there's 42 really spiritually, I don't know, gifted people there. My guess is that's too big of a ratio. When the ratio in the Bible was seven for 10,000. Um, and the third and final application from today's passage is that we should seek to have God's heart for a growing and culturally diverse church family. Over and over in scripture, God says that his plan is not to have a people for himself from one nation or one race or one culture. God's plan is to have a people for himself, a church from all nations, from all people groups, from all languages and tribes. This is what Jesus said in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. 
God told Abraham back in the Old Testament that Abraham's lineage, the lineage in which Jesus would eventually come, through that lineage, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Psalm 22, 27 says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. That's God's vision. That's what's going to happen. And we want that vision to be our vision. So unless Jesus comes back first, we should anticipate that the Lord will bring new people into our community from a diversity of nations and races and cultures. And as that happens, may we see, uh, may, may, may we live out Jesus' mission as he brings the nations to us. It's one of the very fascinating things that's happening in world mission discussions right now. There is a true aspect of still going to the nations, but there's something that God is doing in bringing nations to, to America, to other countries around the world. How can we as Christians make disciples of all nations? And also, as we do that, we want to be witnesses to the unbelieving world around us, right? The unbelieving world around us is very divided right now. We want to show the unbelieving world, by the grace of God, that there is a radical unity and love among the very diverse group of people who call themselves disciples of Jesus. In Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, this is what the Apostle Paul says. No matter what race, what culture you represent, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so in a very practical way, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're part of our church family here at Cedar Home, I want you to pray about how you can embrace cultural diversity in your life and embrace cultural diversity in, in, in our church family and in our community. Obviously, there are parts of culture um, that we reject, there are parts that we can redeem, and there are parts that are fine, we're not, right? But the fact is that culture itself isn't sinful just because it's culture. There are beautiful parts of every different culture in the world. But I want us to think about how, as individuals, how can I, my nature is gonna be to hang out with and to reach out to people who are most like me. But the church says that most of the church isn't like you, or the Bible says that. There's a lot of people who aren't like you. There's, there's a lot of cultural, diverse, cultural diversity. How can I cross cultural bridges in my own life and in the life of the church by including people who, who aren't like me, but who love the Lord? Um, we need more unifiers and peacemakers in the church. Um, God's people are, is diverse, and we want to embrace that and celebrate that. Uh, now, if you are here today and you're not a Christian, we want to know, we want you to know that the Lord loves you, that Jesus loves you, and that you need him more than you can even begin to uh, comprehend. Turn from yourself and turn from sin and turn to Jesus. Be a, this is part of the mess, beautiful message of the, of the gospel. Be adopted into the family of God's diverse beloved children. Um, please talk to me or another Christian here to find out more about becoming a disciple of Jesus. 
In a moment, uh, all of us here who, who confess faith in Christ uh, are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper reminds us um, of this family we've been adopted into, not because of us, but purely because of God's grace and because God's given us eyes of faith to trust him and, and, and to see him as everything we need and want in this life and the next. The Lord's Supper reminds us that, that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed to forgive us. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus uh, is coming back to earth someday and that on that day, his family, this diverse group of people, are gonna share a feast with him at his banqueting table. And so until he returns, he says, remember me in the Lord's Supper. So as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I wanna have a few minutes of silence kind of to prepare our hearts um, if, if we have unconfessed sins, I, I just encourage you to use this time to get right with God and, and to celebrate your forgiveness in Christ, to thank God, to count your blessings, to consider and meditate on what he has done for you in the cross. Um, let's just take a few minutes of silence and do that, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. <laughs>